We are recording. Welcome to Sinner's Take, another Catholic Guys podcast of which we are the worst. I am Eddie. I'm Mark. And I'm Cody. And today we are continuing our Narnia Nuggets with The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. So, welcome back. This is the fifth installment of Narnia Noogies and Narnia Boogies. <laughs> Nugs de Narn. Nugs de Narn. For all our uh, Spanish viewers out there. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe this is, Cody says it is his favorite book. Um, it is my favorite book. Favorite uh, movie too, I've heard. It's, <laughs> <laughs> you heard wrong, as I have not seen it. As uh, I cannot find it. <laughs> and They hid it from me. I... Don't think this is my favorite one. There's good stuff in it, though. So we're just going to jump right into it uh, with the first line. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So the the book, I think, centers a lot around the transformation of... Uh, he's not the main character, but he kind of is a main character. Uh, his name, it says at the beginning, the first line of the book is, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, if that doesn't set up the character well enough for you, then maybe the third line will, which is... Uh, I don't know how his friends talked to him, for he didn't have any. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, so basically, he's the cousin of the Pevensies, the four kids that usually go to Narnia, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Uh, but he's, I don't know what he is. He's hes kind of a... He's just a troll. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he just thinks he knows a lot because he, I don't know, reads books and then, like us, and then... He has no friends, and he brags, and he complains. He just whines for the first like third of the book. He's so. like a pampered only child. Not, I'm not saying that all pampered only children no, he is are not. like this, yeah. but in the book, he is a pampered only child, and his parents are well-off people that mostly just focus on the, I, I think, like the small things in life, and so he feels like he knows more than most people about the small things in life, but because he acts like he does, nobody cares to listen to him. And he, Edmund and Lucy, are all taken to Narnia through this this picture of a boat in Lucy's room. And uh, they're swept up in this adventure where they're basically sailing from island to island and just then venturing on further out into the eastern ocean because they suspect that Aslan's country is there, but also they just don't know what's there. So they're they're kind of going just to explore it. And that's why I like this book so much. It kind of has like an Odyssey feel to it. I've never read the Odyssey, but I really want to. But the idea of um, just setting off with no definitive end in mind uh, on the adventure. And again, it, it kind of calls back the adventure of, of the spiritual life. And I think, you know, sailing on a boat is a, at least my favorite analogy for everything um, everything because it's the best analogy for everything oh but the spiritual life in general just you because know. yeah that's what it is it's they know they want to get to Aslan's country they don't know what Aslan's country is or really how to get there and so that is we all want to get to heaven we don't know how to get there at all the only important question is are you willing to go on the journey mm -hmm. everything else will essentially take care of itself as it comes and so yeah it is it is very much so a symbol to that but fast forward a bunch Fast forward a bunch, skipping all the parts where Eustace is kind of a jerk. Well, not all the parts. He's like super annoyed because he gets really seasick when he's on boats. And then he, he doesn't like that he was kidnapped from his home. He messes with Reepicheep, who is a character I think we're going to talk about a lot. He values his honor very highly. And he's, he's a mouse. He's Yeah, he's a mouse. He he's sneaks a, he's up a on him. He's a three foot tall mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what he, it's 
kind of tall. Eustace sneaks up on him and like grabs his tail and swings him around and stuff. Reepicheep ends up like stabbing him in the hand with his sword and then beating him with the flat of the blade all the way <laughs> back to the cabin. Um, and and so he's just super annoying, like doesn't want to be there. He's constantly grumbling the whole time. Uh, so he eventually, they make it to an island that they passed the charted land and the charted islands that they have. They make it to an island and they set down to gather supplies and everything for the for the rest of the journey and he sneaks off by himself and finds this cave in the middle of a valley and he sneaks down to it because it starts raining so he wants to you know take refuge in the cave but he sees a dragon come out and he, he freezes the dragon looks super sick and super old though and it goes over to this pool of water and then just dies <laughs> <laughs> and and for sure caught me off guard the first time i read it and yeah. i was like oh it's like is it pr- i was like well that's convenient <laughs> <laughs> and it's the way that eustace feels too it says in the book he feels like he like he fought and slayed the dragon because he was so afraid of it and then like the relief is like he actually killed it rather than it just died uh but he takes refuge in its cave and he starts to realize that there's a bunch of riches all around the cave and so he starts he starts taking these like piling them into his pockets and he slips this ring that's way too big for his finger because it was meant for a dragon's finger uh all the way up his arm and then you know he went on this long hike and then he got super tired or super scared so he just falls asleep uh and because the rain doesn't look like it's gonna let up everyone's looking for him and everyone's super like nervous like what happened to use this as much of a jerk as he's been everyone else is being super good to him and you know, they're not leaving him behind on this island, which they kind of, at this point, you'd feel they are in their rights to do. Not totally, right? It's stranding a human being on an island, but close to it. So he wakes up and he finds that he's turned into a dragon himself because of the dragonish thoughts in his heart of wanting power and the riches. And as he realizes that he's become a dragon, he re- like his first thought is, oh, now I can get back at Edmund and Caspian, who are also on the boat. But even as he's thinking that, he's he starts to realize, like, no, he doesn't actually want that. Like, what he'd rather is to be human again and be in their company again. And as he's starting to realize all of this, he's realizing, like, maybe he turned into a dragon for a reason. And maybe he was a beast all along. And st- he just starts crying. And he eventually goes back and finds them. And they're there. And that, that almost cuts him even more is that they didn't leave him behind, even though he was such a jerk. And he realizes how, again, how good they've been to him. And they eventually find out that it is Eustace that he's turned into a dragon. And so they keep him around and he's actually able to be useful. Like he's able to carry a bunch of supplies and wood and uh, all these things that they would have had to carry themselves. He's able to carry very easily. And he doesn't and, speak English for the record. He just, yeah, they can't really communicate with him. Yeah. So he, he finally feels like it says like it's a new feeling like to be of use and to be like wanted to have around uh, which is super sad but he still wants to be a human and then it, it cuts and Edmund wakes up one night and goes out to to sit by the dragon and to comfort him uh, but he finds that the dragon is gone and then he sees somebody coming down the hill and it's Eustace and he's like what well, what happened and Eustace starts to recount uh, exactly what happened And essentially what happens is Aslan, he doesn't know Aslan, but a lion comes to visit him and takes him up on top of this mountain and to a pool of water. And 
tells him to strip himself of of his of his clothes and he's like well i'm not clothed but then he realizes oh it's the skin so he starts to tear away at the skin uh, and he tears as much off as he possibly can by himself but he can't get the last layer off of off of himself and so the lion says i'm going to have to do this for you and he used to says the first tear is like it cuts to his heart like the like the claw of the lion goes in so deep that it feels like it cuts him to the heart uh, and he said it would have been unbearable except for the pleasure of seeing it peel away uh, like a scab almost like a, a scab hurts so much to pick at but it's also really like kind of fun to see it get picked at and he, it's peeled away and he becomes becomes useless again becomes a boy and he feels transformed and i mean he goes into the water too, yeah right? yeah after he's peeled after the skin has been peeled away uh aslan tosses him into the water and you know like what is that baptism is that? much whoa <laughs> i didn't pick up on that that's super subtle <laughs> that yeah that one would have t- taken me a while to figure out <laughs> he was so much of a beast that he you know was hardly human and was not acting as a human would act and wasn't in the company of his fellow men who were living lives of virtue. Uh, and all he wanted really was to be a part of them. And he's taken, he's stripped of the beast and he bathes and now he's a boy again. And he comes back and he's like actually easy to talk to. And you almost like the the dialogue that he starts to have uh, and the fascination with Aslan. It, it, again, I think a lot of us have have kind of, maybe not fully appreciated that because that dragon skin, that beast skin was stripped off so young for most of us, but it's something to reflect on that, you know, we were there at one point. I think, I think another little detail that was in there is after he has this like essentially like conversion moment, um, like he's still like his old habits aren't completely gone. Like he still catches himself doing, the things that he doesn't like to do, but now he has like a new hatred for those things and a reason to be better and a reason to not be like he used to. So there's still like a little bit of that left, but as the story progresses, he progressively gets more and more like the men of virtue that he's with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. I like that. That's like the community draws it out of him. Yeah, and then fast forward again to... They're on another island, and Lucy goes into this magician's like house, and she sees a book. And this is kind of small, but I think it's worth it's worth mentioning. And she goes through like this laundry list of things. There's like uh, a bunch of different stuff within the book, and some of them she wants to read, some of them she doesn't. Like she envisions what she would look like if she was, because like apparently her sister Susan is like really beautiful, so she like envisions what it would look like if she was beautiful, but doesn't like the person that she is becoming. She gets to see that, but then she also gets she like can look in on anything and she eavesdrops on one of her friends who is speaking to a, who goes to the same school as her back on earth and is speaking to an older, like popular girl and the older popular girl who doesn't like Lucy, like starts to badmouth Lucy to Lucy's friend and, and Lucy's friend basically goes along with it and badmouths and, you know, talk bad and talks bad to and gossips about Lucy and Lucy hears it. And she's really upset about it. And she's like, oh my gosh, I thought we were friends. I thought we were whatever. And then she goes on to another thing, which another spell, which makes invisible things visible. And it's said that when she says that Aslan appears and she says, oh, Aslan, it was great. Like, how nice of you to come. And he said, you, I said, he's like, I was here the whole time, but you made me visible. And she said, 
there's nothing I could have done that made you visible. And he says, a really good line, he says, do you think I wouldn't obey my own rules, right? And I think that that's really good that we know. And I think that's a very important aspect of Christian theology is that God is a God who is love and does not bend that for anything. Like he doesn't view his purposes above like who he is. And so he doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't do any of that. Like he obeys the rules that he sets out for us essentially because the rules are who he is essentially. And they're not rules, all that, all that stuff. But you get the point I'm trying to make probably. Maybe they don't. (laughs) Uh, I think they do. And she says, she's, she, uh, he basically says to her, like, you've been eavesdropping. She says, I wasn't eavesdropping. And he says, doesn't matter if it was with magic or not, you are. And she says, he says that you're mistaken about your friend. She does. She loves you. She's just weak-willed. And she didn't want to be insulting to the older popular girl. And she said stuff that she doesn't mean. And Lucy says, well, I can never forget what she said. And Aslan just says, no, you can't. And she, like, realizes now that, like, her friendship with her is essentially ruined. And Aslan, and she says, like, oh, well, we have been best friends. And Aslan again, reminds her that he doesn't tell anybody what would have happened. He'll, you know, he doesn't tell people what would have happened if this hadn't happened, but he basically acknowledges the fact that yes, that the friendship has been like damaged for like forever. Basically. Uh, I think that that's just, it's interesting because it goes back to the curiosity thing that we've talked about for multiple of these episodes where she's curious about something that she shouldn't be curious about. And it comes back to bite her in the butt. And we, it's, it's just classic sin. So, yeah, I think I think the another point in that is that Aslan re- like recognizes the damage, the real damage that sin does do to us and like does to our soul as well. That it's not just something that is sort of like willy nilly, like you sin, like it's OK, like and nothing, like everything goes back to normal. Um, but there's that actual hurting physical and spiritual that happens when we do sin. And you can see it here like Aslan's like, yeah, you you hurt her. And she's going to feel that. Yeah. It's, he forgives our sins, but like there are consequences of our actions, you know, and we have to live with them sometimes. And this is, you know, most clearly seen in, in, in many things. But, you know, if you cheat on somebody and they break up with you for it, you can be forgiven and the person can forgive you. It doesn't mean you're going to get the person back. The relationship may be done and you have to live with that now. So don't really know what to say from there. I guess don't sin, but like. <laughs> <laughs> you hear, You heard it first from Sinner's Take. Don't sin. Uh, next, I think, I mean, so Reepachief is a mouse, and they, basically, their story is super interesting. The mice, in, in which is, you know, like, like a weird sentence to say. <laughs> the mice are super interesting characters, but they weren't, they didn't used to be talking animals, and then they, they when Aslan dies in the second one, come and, like, bite away all of his ropes, and then, because they were faithful to him in his darkest hour, he turns them into talking mice, essentially, and gives them all that, and so they are like the whole time they become expert swordsmen and they're like all about like honor and loyalty and they're super like super brave but a little bit prideful at times but you know they always say it's because they have such a short stature and people will if people will push the, push on them too much if they don't push back so uh anyway so this he's like all and throughout the whole story as they're continuing down this journey and things get more and more difficult he is the only one who's like because people are starting to talk about like turning around and reaper ships like uh no like we came out to see aslan's like country pretty sure he says like he'll kill everybody if they don't like (laughs) like anybody that wants to leave like he'll fight any one of them like i don't think he's not saying i will kill everyone if we try but something to the extent of he is like he draws he's like no we came here to do this and we are going to do this and he is so set on coming to know aslan that he will do anything there's a really beautiful line in 
uh, that he says, uh, this one, this one I will read. Uh, so they're talking about what they should, everyone's talking about what they should do. And he's made up his mind. He's like, I'm going to keep going no matter what, whatever, whatever anybody else decides we're, I'm going to keep going. Cause things are a little bit more complicated, right? Because there's some of the people want to go back, you know, Caspian can't continue on forever because he has to go back to rural Narnia. But Reba, she's like, I have no responsibilities here. I'm just going to keep going. And he says, my plans, my own plans are made while I can, I will sail East on the Dawn Treader. So he will continue going towards Aslan on the boat that they're on. When she fails me, I will paddle east in my in my coracle, which is like a little lifeboat built for him. He says, when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can no longer swim, if I have still not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. And Pipakeek will be the head of the talking mice in Narnia, saying like, I will die with my nose pointed, sinking in the direction of Aslan's country before I turn around. Like, I will go until the Dawn Treader can't go anymore. I will go until my paddle boat sinks. Until I can no longer physically swim, and then I will just sink to my death, falling in the direction of Aslan. And I think that that is so noble and so cool because I feel like I'm so soft. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the it's the drive for sainthood. Like that, I think that's what you see in him is is just drive, which I think I mean I lack a lot of personally. Uh, so it's it's just cool to see it embodied in even if it is a fictional character, it's cool to see that embodied in someone so much like the, the drive for heaven. I think you see this in the voyaging sort of uh, paradigm of him, like swimming to Aslan's land. But I think that like example of I'm going to go as far as I physically can until I can't go anymore is pretty applicable to just everyday things. Like, our habits and any other things we want to do for the glory of God, we just give it our all and do our best and go with our noise, noses uh, pointed up towards Aslan, Aslan's land. Aslan. Aslan, yeah. And that's I think that's just a good metaphor, for, like Cody said, the path to sainthood and just striving for greatness all the time. Yeah, you got to be single-minded in that, to some extent. Single-minded at the core. You know? Yeah. Just centered in Christ. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> uh, so now fast forward to the that. end. I've never heard that before. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, fast forward to the end. I don't remember exactly how, but ev- basically everyone does decide, okay, this is as far as we're going. It's time for us to turn around and go home because Caspian is still king of Narnia. He can't just keep going. He does have a stopping point and he needs to turn around. And it might be that the, the water has gotten too shallow or something like that. So right. the Dawn Treader can't keep going. Yeah, so the Dawn Treader can't keep going. and But it's shallow for, like, off to the horizon. So he has to turn around, and Reepicheep, true to his word, says, okay, well, I'm getting out. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting in my little boat, and I'm going to row all the way there. So he gets out, and fortunately, the boat is big enough for uh, three children that are with him, Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace. They get in the boat, and they start paddling but it's not really a strain if i remember there's kind of a favorable current that's drawing them along as well and at this oh man at this point just the the imagery that's used they're they're sailing on a sea but i think there's a bunch of like silver flower petals that are covering it um the water that they drink is sweet and also satisfies their hunger and the sun is warm and bright but it looks young and it you can't get sunburned from it which like holla Right. You <laughs> Take can, me there. You can stare. <laughs> you can stare into the sun, and your eyes are fine. Yeah, 
And so they, they continue along and finally they, they find, they see a beach, they see land and they just kind of, you know, right up to it. And I really love, uh, what comes next because, uh, my favorite chapter of scripture is John chapter 21. And this is, uh, like a clear parallel of that. So they make it to, to, they make it to shore in their little boat and they see on the sand, a lamb right next to a, a charcoal fire with fish on it, which again is like direct reference to John chapter 21. Uh, and the reason I love that so much is because, uh, so much of it is just like the intricate kind of like drama of the friendship that Jesus has with his disciples. When he calls out to them on the shore, he says, uh, you know, did you try throwing the net over on the other side, which was one of the first things that he says to them. Uh, and why they started following him in the first place. And that, like when he says that and they pull all the fish in, it's kind of like an inside joke between them almost. Like nobody else is there to witness that. It's just for them. Uh, and it's just kind of this little, like this little joke that he has with them. And, and they immediately recognize that it's him. Uh, and I love that so much just because of how personal it is, like how, how known they are and what, what a small, it's not a small thing, right? Like pulling in a miraculous amount of fish is not really a small thing, <laughs> but it's for the disciples at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they pull in uh, and Peter sees that it's him and, you know, kind of like reap a cheap, like jump. He's still clothed. They're in a boat so they could just, you know, paddle back to shore. Probably faster than he could. <laughs> but, uh, I think they do make it back before he does, yeah. but he puts his clothes back on because he was stripped for work jumps into the water and then swims to, to shore because he's like, I will not wait to see Jesus. Like, I, I just won't. Um, so again, kind of that single-minded devotion for relationship with the Lord. So anyways, back to the book. It's just, it, there's a charcoal fire with fish on it and a lamb. And I, lo I love that imagery, but also just them having made it and like how peaceful the scene that's set is. Uh, and it leads into a really beautiful dialogue. So then the lamb transforms with like shining gold and white into Aslan. No surprise. Aslan's the lamb. You ever heard of transfiguration? <laughs> yeah. And so Aslan's, they, they encounter him and he pretty much tells Edmund and Lucy that they aren't going back to Narnia ever again until they come there to stay permanently. And they're sort of distraught at that. Like they want to. And, and the same thing happened to Peter and Susan. Right. And was it, it was in the previous book. Yeah, the previous Prince Caspian. Book. Yeah. yeah. So now these two children don't get to go back to Narnia. They don't have, you know, other adventures in Narnia until they're there permanently. And so, like, Edmund asks why this is, like, why they can't stay in Narnia. And Aslan tells them that he's there in their world as well. And he says, I am in your world, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me know me better there. And I just thought, like, when I read that, because it's like the last page of the book, too. I read that, and I was just like, this is an encounter with Christ through Aslan, like we've been doing this whole series. But we encounter Christ through many other different things that aren't directly related to him. And I just, obviously, it's a direct relation to Christianity on, like, on their earth. Um but yeah, that was a that was just a cool moment for me when I was reading it. Yeah, because you you can feel it in the book too, and where that like why I mean I mean while you're reading it, you can feel it in the book where it's like 
yeah, this isn't real. And this whole reason why these books exist is so that you can come to know Jesus outside of it. And it's just, it's just very profound. And so we need to strive to love him and come to know him in many, many ways, as many ways as we can, you know? And if not, die with our noses pointed in his direction, I suppose. Thank you.